Our sermon text reading comes from the book of John chapter 14. If you love me, you will keep my commandments and I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans, I will come to you. Yet a little while and the world will see me no more, but you will see me. Because I live, you also will live. And that day you will know that I am in my Father, and you in me, and I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Judas, not Judas Iscariot, said to him, Lord, how is it that you will manifest yourself to us and not to the world? Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my, my words, and the word that you hear is not mine but the fathers who sent me. These things I have spoken to you while I am still with you, but the helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I am going away, and I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced, because I am going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. And now I have told you before it takes place, so that when it does take place, you may believe. I will no longer talk much with you, for the ruler of this world is coming. He has no claim on me, but I do as the Father has commanded me so that the world may know that I love the Father. Rise, let us go from here. This is the word of the Lord. One of the main problems with the invention of things like texting and social media is that we are teaching people to be bad readers. And so we now often communicate through snippets and headlines, Twitter only allows you to use 280 characters, which is not very much. We, we scroll through our, our phones with very quick swipes. I'm as bad as this as anyone. Each morning I wake up and there's a few newspapers that I like to read and a few blogs that I follow, but I, I very rarely just read for deep content. I just quickly scroll through. My wife, Vanessa, will often tell me that I'm a, a terrible texter. I, I just skim through the, the text so quickly. and so. Just the whole texting thing. I, I get a little bit tired of it. My, my wife is very kind, and so she'll send me a nice, long, thorough text about how the kids are doing and what the doctor has said about our baby and a, a few encouraging words for me as a pastor for the day. And then three, four hours later, I'll respond back with a big thumbs up. And I just, well, I probably need to do a little bit better. I need to, to read and to process and to think about what she has sent me. We, we are quick, superficial readers, which is not good, 
because the deepest and most meaningful thoughts usually come through deep reading and deep thinking. And this section from the Gospel according to John is a great example of why we need to read and think carefully. This is not a section that you want to scroll through quickly, because if we do, you are going to miss some of the very best truths of what it means to be united to Christ. And so here is the outline for this morning. It's a very simple outline. We are going to look at the first three verses very carefully. Verse 15, verse 16, and then verse 17. And then at the very end, we're going to try and tie it all together into one big principle that makes some sense for our lives. But before we jump in, remember that the quick context is that this is happening on Maundy Thursday. So this is the Thursday before Good Friday. Jesus has just washed the feet of his disciples. Judas Iscariot has already left to go and turn Jesus into the authorities. So just a few hours from now, the process of Jesus being put to death is really going to begin. So these words are part of a larger discourse that Jesus is giving to his disciples. These are part of his last words. Now go with me to verse 15. This will be the, verse, the first verse that we begin to look at in some depth. Jesus says, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. Now, when we hear the word commandments, we initially think of the different moral commandments of the Bible, and perhaps we think even initially of the Ten Commandments. Things like having no other gods before our God, not committing adultery, telling the truth, honoring our moms and dads. Now on the surface, that would make some sense. If we love God, we are going to want to follow not just the Ten Commandments, but all of the commandments that God has given to us in the Scriptures. And that is an absolutely true statement. We don't need need to take that back. Jesus is not against following what God has commanded. There are some Christian traditions that have a very sharp distinction between gospel and law, and that is just not always so helpful because the two certainly intersect. Well, let's press this verse a bit more and get below the surface. Notice what Jesus says. He says, keep my commandments. So the word my is used here. So again, it's not that Jesus is against what God the Father has said, but Jesus is speaking specifically here of what he has said. This is in reference to the commandments of Jesus. And one of the principles of of good biblical interpretation is that you first start within the realm of a certain book. And so, if we want to figure out what Jesus means by his commandments, we need to figure out what Jesus has commanded here in the gospel according to John. This is an especially helpful observation that I found in John Piper. And John Piper says, if you look over the course of the gospel according to John, here are the things that Jesus has specifically commanded. Back in chapter one, Jesus has said, receive me, follow me. In chapter five, he says, get up to the crippled man. In chapter 11, he says, to rise. In chapter 12, he says, believe in the light. In chapter 13, love one another. In chapter 14, he says, believe in God, believe in me. In chapter 15, abide in me. 
ask whatever you wish. In chapter 15, again, he repeats that phrase, abide in me. And then in chapter 20, to receive the Holy Spirit. And so the vast majority of commands in the gospel according to John, spoken by Jesus, are about receiving, not acting. About believing, not rejecting. About having a soft heart towards Jesus, not a hard one. Again, if you were to go all the way back to the prologue in chapter 1, verse 12, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. The the overarching command in the gospel according to John from Jesus is not to do, but to receive from God, to receive delight, to receive Jesus as the Word, to receive Jesus in his life, death, and resurrection, to believe in Jesus, to take him at his Word, to rest in him, and as we see here, to love him. Notice the connection in verse 15 between genuinely loving Christ and receiving him. You see, it is love for Christ that drives us to receive him. And this command here is in direct opposition to what Jesus said all the way back in chapter 3, where we saw that people love the darkness. By By that word love, we know it's not just a feeling, it's not just a hallmark phrase, but by love, we see it's, it's a deeper conviction that, that, that people love the world, that the, the, the posture of their heart, the bent of their soul is that they would move towards the world, that they would receive from the world, that they would be conformed to the world, that people are embracing it. And in the same way, Jesus is saying, if you love me, you are going to receive me, you're going to take me and you're going to be conformed by me. Even in our increasingly secular culture, most people that I know still like Jesus. Certainly a number of people I know that that, they don't like Christians, they don't like the church, they don't like the Old Testament, but most people still generally like Jesus. He's a good guy, he loved the poor, he, he, he fed people, he taught us to love our enemies, and he suffered a humble martyr's death. What is there not to love about this man? But what most people mean is I love the idea of Jesus as long as I can keep him at a distance, but I, I'm not going to fully receive him. I'm going to be removed from him. I'll, I'll keep Jesus as my role model. Or I'll I'll keep him as a figure in history. I'll keep him as a man that is worth studying in the textbooks. But I will not love him to the point of actually receiving him. Because here's the thing. If you actually genuinely love him, you will take him in. And if you do not actually take him in, then you do not love him. It is not possible to love Jesus as a simple historical figure. Jesus has no category for religious fans or just casual students of religious history. 
You either love the world and are taking in the world and all that it has to offer, or you are loving Jesus and taking him in for all that he has to offer. But those are the only two options. You are going to love something, meaning that you are going to be conformed to it. There is no middle ground. But here's the main problem in this text, and this is the question that Judas will ask in verse 22. Now, it is a little bit confusing because there are two Judases. There is Judas Iscariot. He is the one who has already left to betray Jesus. And then there is an entirely different man named Judas. And I feel really bad for him because that is a terrible name to, to, to share, especially if you're friends with the, the betrayer Judas. But there is a second Judas. He is a different man, and he has a very fair question. Jesus, how are we going to receive you if in just a few hours you're going to leave? You're, you're, you're going to die. It's the question for us today. If, if, if we genuinely love Jesus... We want to do what he commands. The command is to take him in, to receive him, to abide in him, to believe in him. How do you do that when he's not here? He's gone. Of course, one day he is going to return, but as of right now, Jesus is not here. And the answer to that question is found in verse 16. So this will be the second verse that we want to read very carefully so that we fully understand what is going on here. Verse 16 is a difficult verse because of the word parakaleo. In your version of the Bible that is printed in the bulletins, the word parakaleo is translated as helper. And it is a very difficult word to translate. Again, in Greek it is parakaleo. And you might hear in that that the beginning is para. That that word is a prefix. It means to come alongside of. So you think of a para church ministry. It means it's a ministry that comes alongside of the church to help her in her mission. Or you think of a paralegal assistant that comes alongside of. So para, kaleo. Kaleo is the word to call. So para kaleo literally means the one called to come alongside of. And it's, it's, it's hard to translate and to figure out exactly what that word means because we do not have a great English equivalent. So most translations translate parakaleo as the comforter. This is the most common understanding. The problem, though, is when we hear the word comfort, we just think of warm sympathy, like the comforter on our bed. And so it's, it's about to be fall, and it's going to be a little chilly, and you go home, and you get your comforter, and just snuggle up with it, and you, you feel warm and squishy. Oh, we just love the comforter. And the Holy Spirit is like the comforter on my bed. But the Latin root of the word comfort actually means to strengthen, that in trouble that the comforter would strengthen you to press on. So there are some downsides of translating parakaleo as comforter because we think something different than what is intended. Other versions translate the word as counselor. So we might think of our our camp counselor or a marriage counselor, but the spirit is not just an, an older wise person that gives us advice. What is more in context would be a legal counselor. 
So when we get to John chapter 16, we're going to talk about the the parokaleo again and the Holy Spirit, and we'll see in the context of John 16, the parokaleo is in the context of sin and judgment, of law and guilt. And so the Spirit actually comes as a legal counselor, which is why some other versions use the word advocate in their translation, that the Spirit advocates before the Father pleading our case. So the parakaleo is a helper, legal defense, strengthener, advocate, all kind of wrapped up into one. And all of that is what is being sent to us. Jesus is going to leave, and he is going to send the Spirit. Which gets us to verse 17. In 17 begins to unpack the the mystery of how the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit work together. It's it's a verse, it's very, again, very easy to read quickly and just to scroll through it, but we really need to press in to figure out what Jesus is saying here. And the context of verse 17 is really found in the following two paragraphs. In the following two paragraphs, we see that Jesus and the Father are one. Again, back to the prologue. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus is from God. He is light from light. He is true God from true God. He is begotten. He is not made. He is of the same substance as the Father. You see in verse 20 that Jesus is in the Father. In verse 21, we see that he who loves Jesus will be loved by the Father. Again, there's a unity here. And verse 23, notice that it starts with singular nouns, but then ends with the plural, we. So the Father, the Son, we, now working as one. There was never a time when Jesus was not, because he is of the same substance as the Father. In the same way that God just is, no beginning, no end, so is Jesus. He just is. And yet, the words father and son implies some separations. There's a fundamental unity, but there's also some distinction. The father does some things that the son does not. The son does things that the father does not. The the, the big words here are there is economic diversity. They, They do different economic functions, and yet, at the same time, there's a fundamental unity. The big word there is ontological unity, that they are the same, a fundamental unity, yet diversity in their roles. It's always been this way. The perfect relationship, love, joy, peace, mutual adoration. The Father has always been looking at the Son in love. The Son has always been looking at the Father in love. There's the fullness of pleasure. They share in the same goal which is the glory of God and the redemption of people. And yet they play very different roles in how it is going to be played out. And this has been happening for all of eternity. A relationship of love, of unhindered, never splintered, overflowing, eternal love between the Father and the Son. And now this might be going beyond what the Bible makes clear, but there are some theologians, very respected, well-known theologians, that actually argue that the Holy Spirit is the bond of love between the Father and the Son. 
that because the Father and the Son are both God, that the unity between the two is so strong, it actually requires God to maintain it, which is God the Spirit. And so this triune relationship is better and deeper than our minds have categories for. And so take those three verses, verses 15, 16, and 17, and now let's try and put this all together in a way that makes some sense. So here we are. It's during the final evening with Jesus. And the disciples understand that when Jesus is present, things just go better for them. And when Jesus is not present, things tend to go worse. And they know that within a couple hours, Jesus is going to depart. And that is why their souls are so troubled here. They think that they are going to be abandoned by God. See the word orphan here in the text. These disciples are thinking that they are about to be orphaned by God. And if we're honest, that's why we are so troubled today. Life feels as though we have been left on our own that we are living like orphans, as if there is no power from above, as if there is no love from above, as if there's nobody that's actually helping and shepherding us. We live as though we are troubled orphans. Or to use more modern terms, we are very anxious, very afraid, very depressed. It's, it's, it's very sad that this happens, but what often happens is that many orphans try to justify their existence by earning it. Again, this is a, a very sad thing, but because orphans have never received love, they often struggle their entire lives trying to prove that they are worth something. But, but that attitude, that, that, that orphaned spirit, it comes not from a heart of strength, it comes not from a heart of joy, of, of overflowing happiness. That orphaned spirit comes from a heart of deficit, of, of, of weakness, of lacking. And grown-ups do the same. We act out of the weakness of our own hearts. Because we have not received We act like orphans, trying to earn it, trying to prove it. And if that is your understanding of the gospel, then you are going to take verse 15, this idea of loving God and doing what he commands, doing what Jesus commands, and you are going to turn that into a checklist for how you can justify God's love for you. It's an orphan spirit. It's a very moving scene at the end of Saving Private Ryan. It's a very well-known movie. I think it's probably 20 years old now. Matt Damon uh, plays a character named Private Ryan. And Private Ryan is a young soldier serving in World War II. And Private Ryan has lost all of his brothers in the war. Tom Hanks, who is the other main character, is a captain who has been given the mission to go and save Private Ryan, so Private Ryan to come, to come back to the U.S. so that his mom might have just one son left. 
And now the, the cost of saving Private Ryan is the death of a number of other soldiers, including the death of the captain played by Tom Hanks. So it's, it's almost the end of the movie. Tom Hanks, the captain, is about to die. He's looking at Private Ryan, who has now been saved. And Tom Hanks says to Matt Damon, earn it. Earn it. Well, this is Matt Damon. This is Tom Hanks. This is, you know, an Academy Award winning movie. So, so it's, it's very well done. It's very emotional. You get sucked into this, this very moving scene. But those are actually terrible words to live by. You've been offered this gift of grace. And Tom Hanks says, earn it. The very final scene in the movie you have Private Ryan. He is now an elderly, grown-up man. He is standing at the graves in Normandy. He is looking down at all these graves. Behind Private Ryan are his, his family, his wife, his kids, his grandkids. It seems as though Private Ryan has lived a, a decent life, that he was a, a decently good man, and yet his soul is still very troubled. The question is, why would he be troubled? Older man, lived a good life. And it's because those words, earn it, are still haunting him. And so he turns to his wife, says, tell me that I've been a good man. Tell me that I have earned it. What a, what a, a damning phrase to live by. Because how will you ever know if you have earned it? Instead, what you want to do is receive it. An orphan spirit is the spirit of, of trying to justify, of trying to earn, and it is sadly the spirit that many have with Christianity. I believe in Jesus. I love Jesus. Therefore, I am going to follow his commands by earning it. God, I'm going to prove my worth to you. I'm going to show you that the death of your son was not in vain. I'm going to show you that I was worth it. But how will you ever really know if you did enough to earn it? You won't. You'll always live like an orphan with turmoil in your heart. But here's the gospel. The gospel is far better than God saying to us, earn it, because Jesus, again, if we press below the surface and read very carefully, Jesus does not say, if you love me, earn it. He says, if you love me, receive it. And that's why we need to go deeper with the scriptures. The gospel is this, for all of time, for all of eternity past, Father and Son, united by the Spirit that proceeds from both. In the Trinity, there is no weakness, there is no frailty. In the Trinity, there are no needs. The Trinity does not need you to justify yourself. God does not need your efforts. He does not need your checklist, but rather, the Trinity is an overflowing fountain of sufficiency, an overflowing fountain of eternal strength. The Spirit does not come to you just to be a nice, squishy pillow, but rather the Spirit from this eternal relationship comes to strengthen you, to advocate for you, to strengthen you in the times of trial, to overflow into you what has been overflowing from all of eternity. Yes, without that, you will be an orphan, but with Him, with that in your life, with the eternal sufficiency 
of all time in your life, you will never be an orphan again. And if you love him, if you obey him in this sense, you will receive all that God is for you. You'll believe him, you'll take him in, you'll receive this eternal relationship. It's not about earning, but about receiving. And look with me at at the final clause of verse 17. The final clause, he dwells with you and will be in you. So without God, you're an orphan. That's the main problem in verse 17. Jesus has spent years now at the side of his disciples, but now he is about to depart. Jesus will be gone. You can't see him. You can't touch him. But the Spirit has come, and if you desire Jesus, if you want him, if you want blessing and peace and joy, if you love Jesus and do what he commands, what is the command? To receive him. And if you receive him, the triune love of God the Father and the Son in the Holy Spirit is now going to come in you. In a few weeks, we'll get to John chapter 17, and this will be the, the, the major thing of abiding in God, that God is actually in you. And if that's true, if this eternal relationship, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, is now in you, then in the deepest sense, you'll never be an orphan again. You'll never be troubled again. Yes, of course, there are going to be troubling parts of life. There's going to be hardship, pain. We still live in a very hard, sin-cursed world. There'll be many things that are hard to understand. But in all of those troubled, you won't be crushed. You won't live like an orphan because you'll know God's strength because God is in you, strengthening you, advocating for you. All the blessings and all the power of Jesus walking side by side with his disciples, that same power is now yours. When I say that God in you, I don't mean that in the way that so many pop psychologists say it today. Just look inside yourself and you'll find you know, all sorts of self-esteem and value. That, that's not, it's not you and you. It's the triune love of God the Father and God the Son and God the Holy Spirit now in you. It is God in you, meaning you have everything you need in life. The gospel is an invitation to receive the joyous strength of the Trinity into your life right now. You know, we can often talk about Christianity in in very academic ways, and this is perhaps the fault of many Presbyterians. And, you know, we can talk about why, you know, Christianity is a a more consistent worldview. It's a more superior thought. It's better than other systems. We can talk to you about the historicity of Christianity because we got manuscripts and we got records, and all of that is, is wonderfully true. But in the midst of talking about Christianity, don't forget what Christianity ultimately is. It is not ultimately just a discipline to be dissected and debated in ivory halls. It is the means by which the power of heaven comes to you. It is the means by which the Trinity in his fullness reaches down from heaven 
and strengthens you for each day. As the world and as the devil and even as your very own thoughts are constantly accusing you that you should be an orphan, just preaching to you, you're, you're guilty, you're a failure, there's no good, nobody loves you, there's no purpose for your life. When you receive the Spirit, you have the advocacy of heaven pleading on your behalf that none of that is true. There is personal power for you in the gospel because you have the power of heaven on your side. You know, when you're preaching a sermon and listening to a sermon, what often matters as much as the content of what you are hearing or what you are saying is the tone which accompanies the content. You see, most people, they hear verse 15 as a very stern warning. If if you love me, you you will keep my commandments. I mean, if if you love me, you gotta earn it, you gotta prove it, you gotta prove your worth to God. Prove that you are worth the death of Jesus on the cross. Most people hear verse 15 as being very stern. But that's not the tone. The tone is much more life-giving. If you love me, says Jesus, you, you will keep my commandments. And what are my commandments? To believe, to receive, to abide in Christ. It's not about earning, but about receiving, about taking God at his word to receive the invitation of all that the Trinity is for you. And when you receive that, when you take in all that God is for you, the things of earth, including even these present troubles, are going to go strangely dim in the light of his glory and his grace. Let's pray. Oh, Father, we give you thanks for this. It's it's almost too good to be true, all that you are for us. Father, if there would be any here this morning that are struggling with this orphan spirit, doubting your love, doubting your sufficiency, living lives trying to justify ourselves, Lord, by your grace, help, help us to change. Fill us now. Remind us of your word. Remind us of the gospel. Remind us of your son. Remind us of the Father, the spirit that we now have, the helper in us. Oh, Lord, we we need your help. We give you thanks for all that you are for us. In Jesus' name, amen.